Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm William, and I'm here with Samantha today. Hi, Samantha. Hi, William. And with us today, we have one of our wonderful coworkers, Tabitha. Hi, Tabitha. Hi, William. And today, we're going to be talking about the intersection of the military and domestic violence. It's not a topic that we've covered before, so it's it's really nuanced and complex, and we're going to try to cover some of that. But like many of our topics, we certainly won't cover it all. By way of trigger warnings for this episode, we're going to be talking about domestic violence. We're going to be talking about the military. We're going to be talking about survivors and offenders and different processes. So if ever you need to take a break during this episode, please do so and join us back whenever you're ready. So Tabitha, this is your first time on the podcast. So excited to have you. For everybody, when they're first on the podcast, we want to introduce them to the people, as it may be. And so could you tell the listeners how you got involved in the domestic violence movement? In a way, I think I've always been involved in the domestic violence movement, whether I wanted to be or not. Being the daughter of a survivor and seeing the things that she endured both inside of the abusive relationships, plural, and in the criminal justice system and in the child custody system, it was, it shaped the way that I look at the world for better or for worse. So whenever I grew up, became an adult, there was just always something tugging at me that there was so much injustice surrounding this situation, this issue. And I'm one of those people that I can't not do something about it. So Whenever I got out of the military, I was a contractor overseas for a little while, and it was time to come home, stop living out of a a suitcase, and I decided to go to law enforcement academy, and I became a peace officer and, of course, had my fair share of family violence cases there. I also took a training that let me become a special investigator in family violence and sexual assault. I ended up leaving law enforcement and going into child welfare. I worked for DFPS. Again, tons and tons of family violence cases, same issue, different angle. And then whenever I saw this position open, I was like, this is just the logical next step. So let's do it. Yeah. And we're so happy to have you. You're on our policy team. It is a busy time right now as we're recording during legislative session. And so we appreciate you making the time to, to come talk with us today. I'm so glad to be here. I appreciate y'all having me. Yeah, we're so excited, Tabitha. And as this is going to be airing in the middle of summer, right when it's probably going to be super hot, getting to the uncomfortable temperatures here in Texas, I wanted to ask you all about a delicious way to cool down, ice cream. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? I'll throw it over to you to start, Tabitha. Well, I'm about to get my Texas passport revoked because I prefer briars, specifically strawberry briars, to Bluebell. That's a hot take. Yeah, I do think you might make some enemies with that one. If you have any angry emails, please don't direct them to us. (laughs) Yeah, Um, or if you do, we'll just forward them along. (laughs) There we Um, go. ruining our sponsorship chances with Bluebell that were like definitely in the works. (laughs) No, so I, strawberry ice cream, I think is way underrated. I think people talk bad about strawberry ice cream all the time. So just want to acknowledge 
and I think strawberry ice cream is delicious. Same. It is still and a strawberry milkshake too. Like mm. delicious. So yeah. refreshing. I think it's interesting. Like this is not my favorite, but Neapolitan ice cream. I think a lot of people think that strawberry is like the throwaway flavor in Neapolitan. And I'm like, absolutely not. It's just not. It's great. Personally, my favorite ice cream is chocolate chip cookie dough. I do think that there are some that are better than others. And I like pretty much any ice cream with cookie dough in it. So like H-E-B has a cookies over Texas ice cream that has like Oreo pieces and cookie dough pieces and maybe other cookie pieces in it. Unsure, but it is delicious. And so really anytime you have cookie dough in an ice cream, I'm usually down for it. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good option. Not the best, but it's a good option. Oreo is superior to cookie dough, but within the right context. So I, I'm realizing as we're having this conversation that I don't buy a lot of ice cream, like to keep at my house. If I'm going to get ice cream, I'm going like to an ice cream place to get ice cream. Like it's an experience. And so... I do tend to go for Froyo a little bit more than ice cream, in which case I will do cookies and like Oreo and vanilla situation because I can control the amount of Oreo and have the proper ratio because buying it pre-made is never the right amount. But if I'm going to get ice cream and I go to like a Cold Stone marble slab situation, I'm going butter pecan, butter pecan, with maybe like some coffee or something. Interesting. I'm not opposed to a butter pecan, but it's interesting that you specifically said like Cold Stone or Marble Slide, like the ones that they're going to mix it for you. Yeah, basically. From, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Because yeah. that's not what I would do in those places. Yeah. Like maybe uh, like a Baskin Robbins where they're not really going to mix you anything in, but like, interesting. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's something about it feeling like fresh to me. Like it feels like the toppings are crisp and crunchy versus mm. like buying them in a pint pre-mixed. It loses that like crunch to it. So I think that's what it is. It's a texture thing. <laughs> Do you have texture? You've yes, talked about texture. I have. Before. Yeah. I'm realizing yeah. that um, mm-hmm. maybe I have the texture. The theme. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I do hope that like this summer we all get to enjoy our favorite ice creams. And also just on, on the ice cream note, just one more thing. Are we cones, cups? What's our preferences? Mm, I would say that would be situational. Mm, okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Whatever's going to be convenient. And, you know, with, with me having a, a youngerish child, I think cone, I immediately think my backseat being covered in ice cream. <laughs> so... A hundred percent. A hundred percent. There's a time and a place. Yes. If I'm by myself, then I'm getting a waffle cone, not a sugar cone. I won't do a sugar cone. Waffle cone. Yes. If I'm with my kid, I'm getting a cup because we, yeah, we're not doing, we're not doing cones. (laughs) I have always preferred a cup. I mean, I love a cone, but I, and I don't have children, but like, I don't want the mess. Like the drippy of the cone. I mean, the cone is delicious, yeah. but I don't want the mess. There's a certain amount of pressure that comes with getting a cone. It's time. It's a time sensitive issue at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also rush. a good compromise and something I personally love to do. 
typically when I'm waiting for yo is the waffle cone pieces to put in my, so I'll oh. get like my mix-ins, like how I normally do. And then I'll get bits of cone to put in there. It's as if you have the cone, but without the mess. You know, I thought you were going to say the waffle bowl. Like some places have the oh, yeah, that waffle too. cone bowl. Mm-hmm. But anyway, sorry, that was a little sidebar because I was curious. But I hope we all get to enjoy the, the cones and the cups. However, however it is this summer, because I'm sure it's going to be miserably hot. So moving into the topic for the day, Tabitha, you shared that you are in the military and you have been working with survivors throughout your career across many different fields and organizations. And so we thought you'd be the perfect person to talk about this intersection of the military and domestic violence. You know, I think, like I said in the intro, it's nuanced and it's complicated because the military is, I mean, a huge organization and it's like many different organizations within like one umbrella word of like military. So I think maybe one of the the best places to start is just to kind of get a lay of the land and say like confirming, not confirming, like the military has its own response that is totally separate from like a civilian domestic violence response, right? Absolutely. The military, and of course, the big umbrella term, because you have all the branches and things like that in there, is, you know, just a microcosm of greater society. And my junior high literature teacher would be so proud of me for finding a way to use that word. But it is, you know, it's a, it's a subculture, for lack of a better way to put it. So the military over the years has developed its own response. And interestingly, each branch has their own version of family services and not in the sense that we think of with removal of children or anything like that, but in the sense of working with families. And typically if a, if a military family is assigned to work with the family organizations, it's not an option. They're mandated to do it by the command, which comes with its own set of issues as far as full participation and people being honest. But Every branch is going to be a little different. Every post is going to be a little different because it's typically there is some discretion from the command. Some of it comes down from the tippy top, but commanders do have their own share of discretion. So it is very confusing and very difficult, particularly for civilian spouses to try to navigate anything in military life, but being involved in a relationship in which violence is being used and trying to walk through that and navigate that as a civilian in the civilian world is extremely difficult. And whenever you have that added layer of working within a system that is completely unfamiliar and sometimes in a country that's completely unfamiliar, it can become a very dire situation. I think that's one of the things that really jumps out at me when we were first, the three of us were first kind of meeting to talk about this topic. And it just goes to show my complete, I guess, like ignorance to this world is that I hadn't even considered the possibility or even like likelihood maybe is even a better word that this could be happening in a completely different country than the one that you've been living in for your entire life. So yeah, not only are you, not only is it difficult to navigate services 
as a civilian, just going through the criminal legal system, law enforcement, and family violence services, but then figuring out how to do that within each individual branch of the military. And then on top of that, which base you're at, and then on top of that, what country you're in and what you have access to. And I hadn't even considered that extra layer of difficulty and nuance prior to some initial conversations we had. And I mean, that just makes it seem not that leaving a relationship is the end all be all or like the only option in an abusive relationship. But if a survivor is wanting to do that, I can only imagine how much more difficult that feels in another country, (laughs) how much more difficult that is to coordinate and even just even just thinking of the logistics of it, right? And language barriers and transportation issues, just a lot of complications that hadn't considered. Well, and to to touch on that a bit more, maybe clarify a point. With the military having its own insular justice system and family system, whenever a family is in another country, let's say Germany, lots of military folks in Germany, they're not going to be dealing with the polizei, so the German police, unless a there's an emergency occurring off post and the polizei are the first ones to respond. Because you got to keep in mind, there are legal agreements between the United States and the host country. And that's something that becomes so complicated. And most people aren't going to dig into that and know exactly who to call and when. I think the other thing that makes this conversation complicated is is the fact that we're talking like what what we specifically mentioned was civilian spouses so you have one military member or, or one partner in the relationship being in the military one who's not whether that's based in the united states based overseas but also if that civilian spouse is a foreign national right that complicates things even more like that's a whole different layer i I'm curious about the other scenarios, right? So like if the abusive spouse is the civilian spouse and the military member is the the survivor, like how does that, does that still say stay insular to like a military process or because the offender is the civilian, does that then go outside of the military? I'm curious about that dynamic. Well, again, that's going to depend very much where you are. If you're... Mm. They say CONUS, so inside of the continental United States, or OCONUS, outside of the continental United States. It's going to make a big difference. Typically, whenever there is a civilian spouse to a service member, the spouse is said to be sponsored by the service member. So his or her access to everything on base is base is dependent upon their relationship to that service member. And sponsorship can be revoked. It's not, well, it's, I won't say it's not uncommon, but the situation does occur when occasionally if a civilian partner wants to come forward about abuse, the service member will then go to his or her chain of command and make, you know, allegations and get that person kicked off base, loss of sponsorship. And if the offender is the civilian partner, that's probably going to be the first step is revoking that person's sponsorship and whether the non-offending spouse wants to or not some of the time, because the military is very much focused on readiness 
they call it. Everything is readiness. So readiness to go into battle, readiness to go into the field, readiness in anything that is an interruption or distraction from readiness, they can articulate a reason to shut it down. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I hadn't even thought about, I mean, I didn't know that sponsorship piece, but certainly in the scenario where the the service member is the abusive partner, like that being used as a, as a, an abusive tactic, right? Just like when we see people in other positions of power, non-military members, whether they're law enforcement officers or their judges or their politicians or any number of things um, using their power to do that. So like, that's super interesting. And then the other scenario is when both partners are in the military. And so that can certainly, I'm sure there's a lot of nuance and complication to that. And now I'm even thinking of, I'm assuming that there are couples that are like, cross branch couples i don't know if there's a different term for that but like like an official term but and with you saying that each branch has their own response how like that complicates things even further if one spouse is like in the air force and the other spouse is in the army and like how those things interact so that's not really a question just kind of a general comment for you to respond to It's absolutely another complicating factor. And just the very basic dual military couple, both serving in the same branch and a lot of times even in the same unit, that becomes a very, very complicated issue because it's almost like the chain of command feels like they have to pick a side. Because you're having to choose which spouse is going to get kicked out of the house, which spouse is going to have their life complicated, which spouse is going to look at possibly losing their security clearance or being put out of the military. And as difficult as it is for anyone else to sort those things out, whenever we're looking from a distance, it's incredibly difficult for a soldiers or two soldiers chain or chains of command to sort that. And if they make the wrong decision, that can be highly detrimental. I'm wondering also about like the escalation of violence that can occur because of lack of reporting earlier on because if i'm like if i'm thinking about it right and my options cuz what i'm hearing and what it's sounding like is once you report this readiness it's this readiness right like we've got to start making changes we've got to start doing things and that's kind of a ball that doesn't stop like it's it's going once you make that report like Things are moving, things are happening, whether you want them to or not. It's sort of out of your control at that point. So I'm sort of wondering if there's a deterrence to reporting because, like you're saying, it's going to cause this friction within the unit. Or my spouse is going to get, if they're the civilian spouse, or if they're the, if they're the sponsorship, yes. Like they're going to immediately get their sponsorship like revoked and have to leave base and then what does that do if we have kids or what does that do to my relationship? And what is that, you know, so there's all these sort of responses and consequences to that report that feel very out of your control once that process starts. So it's, it, it sounds like, and of course I've never gone through that process or, or been a part of it, but it sounds very much like once you make that first step that it's just sort of, gonna happen how it happens and you might not have a lot of influence or sway in that outcome and so 
Yeah. So not only are you having to navigate how to even reach out, who to talk to, that sort of thing, but then you're sort of just really at the mercy of command staff or whoever's making that decision that the outcome is going to be what you want and need. Does that feel accurate? It's, it's absolutely accurate. Once that ball starts rolling, and I won't say it's necessarily the chain of command who, who gets the ball rolling, it's going to be the, the family services, victim services, organizations that are on base. I've had, of course, I've had colleagues and coworkers who've had this situation. And I was once told the only question they were asked is, do you want an advocate? And the second that advocate was assigned, they were sending somebody to kick the soldier out of their home. There was no contact orders put in place. There was one question. The second she got that advocate, everything went so fast. It was totally out of her hands. Which is like so wild. I mean, on one hand, I'm like, great. I love a quick response, right? Because I think that that's that's often a deterrent in our system that we normally see is that survivor comes forth and then they have to navigate the judicial system. They have to navigate law enforcement. They have to navigate domestic violence advocacy organizations. And it's like, it doesn't feel like anything gets done. So on one hand, I'm like, that's fantastic that a survivor comes forth and like immediately there's a thing. And on the other hand, I can see how that's totally stressful and, and maybe not even what the survivor wants. And if we're trying to roll with an, a survivor centered empowerment based response, Maybe they don't want their spouse kicked out of their home or taken away from their children or whatever that means for their own housing situation or their access to different services on base or maybe that's not what they want. But so, yeah, I'm a little like mixed feelings. Like one is kind of this like in awe of the quick response. And on the other hand, I'm like, ooh, maybe that's not exactly the. And, you know, much of that, again, Every base is different, right? Because they have a different command. And a lot of it comes down to the attitudes toward family violence, which I will say my time in, which in the grand scheme of things was not that long. I saw a huge change in the response, but there's also that culture, right? So every weekend before we were dismissed to be off work for the weekend, and I I think this is army wide, every Army person I've ever talked to has had this experience with safety briefings, right? So you're in your formation before you get dismissed for the weekend. You either stand where you are, you gather around, and either the first sergeant or the commander, lieutenant, somebody in a leadership position comes out and gives you a little speech on what not to do to keep yourself out of trouble. And some of them are just so funny. Like there was one commander who was bad about saying, don't add to the population, don't subtract from the population. But I don't know how many times I heard in safety briefings, this is very flippant. All right, don't drink and drive, don't drink and swim, don't hit your spouse, don't hit your kids, don't hit your dog. Bye. And it's, while it's great that it's being said out loud, because that's the first step, right? We're not getting to the second step of seeing it as a problem for the survivor as opposed to just an inconvenience and a headache for the command. Yeah. And we know domestic violence isn't just physical, right? So it's like you may not have hit them, but like how else are you using power and control, right? So 
Oh, and financial abuse in the military mm-hmm. is huge. And there are people who've been in this movement for decades who have a hard time wrapping their mind around the full dynamics of financial abuse. Now take somebody who's freshly graduated their social work program. They take a job on base or their, their spouse is a service member. So they take a job on base and they're working as an advocate. They may not understand it. And then you have them trying to communicate this to a commander or a first sergeant who may or may not even want to understand it. Mm -hmm. There's so much communication that has to happen and everybody has to be on not necessarily the same page, but a similar one that it leaves a lot, a lot of room for things to be missed. And I imagine that like you were talking about the changes, even, even during your time in that you saw, but I imagine as, as the military has become more gender inclusive, that there's had to be some shifts. There's had to be a a bulking of the advocacy response and a lot of investment in like training and education and like prevention education when it comes to training command and convincing what was entirely male organization, I guess. So everything in the military, surprise, surprise is uniform. Oh, who who would have thought But um, every leader, when going into a leadership position or being promoted into a new leadership position, has trainings that they have to attend. Now, those trainings, those leadership trainings, aren't necessarily focused on social issues, social situations that you might bump into with your subordinates. That's expected to be trained at the unit level. So there's going to be differences from one unit to the other, how that is trained or the units who will have a large training and have the advocacy group come in and and train. That's going to be dependent upon how competent they are. And I won't, okay, my Air Force brother, and we'll get very upset if I lump them in on this one. The Army only reacts whenever something bad has happened, typically. So there was a huge shift following a rash of Domestic violence-related murder-suicides back in right after the Iraq war started. I was just doing some research before I jumped on here with y'all, and there are still very high numbers of murder-suicides that are family violence-related in the military. And that's not to say that service members are more likely to abuse or they're more violent or they're more dangerous. It goes back to this is a microcosm of society. But you and you have people more compressed. It's like a bed of nails. The more people you have, the less severe it looks. But whenever you have fewer, that unfortunately everyday social problem looks a great deal more intense. Yeah, and I definitely appreciate you saying that because we d- we definitely don't want to characterize service members as more violent or more abusive. That's definitely not the case, but. It does happen within on base. It happens in military families and veteran families, right? And that's definitely a dynamic. And like many people who use violence, there is some trauma that comes along with not. I don't think every veteran. I can't say a lot of veterans have trauma, right? A lot of military members have trauma and as do many people who aren't in the military. And so you have that conversation about what do trauma-centered, trauma-informed, trauma-responsive services look like, both 
in and out of the military for current and former military members to help with PTSD or to help with just healing from injury or readjusting to coming back to a, a civilian lifestyle. Right. I think there's I've heard a lot of stories around around that that transition is really difficult, particularly if you've been in combat. And so when we talk about prevention services, those type of services, those type of mental health services, those type of education and life transition, quote unquote, I guess, services are are violence prevention services at at their not at their core necessarily, but in addition to their specific nature, I guess. Well, and, you know, that's a great point that you bring up because, for example, whenever I got back from Iraq, I came back to Germany. So we talked about all the the difficulties that comes along with that. But we had to do, before they would let us take block leave and go home to our families that were still in the States, this did nothing for spouses and children who were already there. But they had us do like two weeks of training eight hours a day on different topics. And a lot of the topics centered around keep yourself in check and don't hurt your family because of that rash of murder suicides that had, that had occurred. So it's, it's there, it's happening. Unfortunately, again, there's a lot of people who don't come forward that they're having mental health issues because their career their security clearance, the way that they're looked upon by other members in the unit. And from what I understand, that's getting a ton better. But until we destigmatize the way people are feeling and functioning or not feeling and functioning, we're going to continue to have high veteran suicide. We're going to continue to have family violence. We're going to continue to have child abuse, substance abuse, any number of these life disrupting factors. And I think that's such an important point to talk about is the stigma because I mean, that exists both in and out of the military, right? But it might present itself differently maybe. And I think when I think about the stigma within the military, I can imagine it's kind of two-sided. I'm hearing what, what we're saying about seeking services as somebody who's experienced trauma and you're a service member and you're struggling and like that's all very important and then also i'm imagining that there's probably some stigma as the person experiencing the violence of well you don't want to like you don't want to put their security clearance at risk or you don't want to disrupt their career like you're dependent on them for everything, you know, like where you're living, access to your finances, all of these things. And then also, I mean, that's not even thinking about the fact that the military, similarly to like law enforcement, is very hierarchical. And so I think we've spent a lot of time talking about this from like, maybe, I don't know the terms (laughs) but like entry level position people (laughs) and not like somebody who is ranked higher because then what kind of what kind of barriers might a survivor who's in a relationship with somebody who's ranked very high what might they face trying to make a report if a lot of attitude is well we're having to pick a side or we're having to you know navigate this very like closed internal process, well, who has a lot of power within that closed internal process, right? So yeah, I can just imagine that there's a lot of nuance, a lot of 
tricky navigation that has to happen dependent on a lot of these factors. Well, and you know, you brought up the way things change whenever the person is a rank, whether they be a non-commissioned officer or an officer, whatever the case may be. You also kind of have to look at the internal struggle of the survivor whenever there's there's rank involved, because a lot of it's kind of a running joke that civilian spouses are ranked by the rank of their their significant other. But there's a lot to that. Whenever you've got a civilian spouse who's had to give up their career because they're moving so much, give up education because they're moving so much or because they're raising children and military doesn't pay all that great. Having this identity of I am the spouse of this person in power can be devastating. Yeah, and I think that we see that in non-military when when a person has power, there are often, you know, you have nice housing, you have access to, again, that financial abuse that you were talking about, right? Like, it, it just gets deeper and deeper. So it gets harder and harder for a survivor to exit that situation. And I know that for, there are, I mean, military bases are, often integrated very closely to the cities that they're in or nearby. And it's not as simple as someone just going, just leaving, just leaving base and then going to a family violence shelter. That's a civilian organization. Often those organizations either have agreements with base around how that will work or They just can't serve that survivor in the same way. They can't hold the offender if the offender is the military partner accountable in the same way. Like protective orders aren't enforced in the same way. And so I'm I'm curious about your observations with how those responses, how those resources interact with military responses and resources or, or like what is available or not available to folks. Unrelated, but related. In the past, I would say, decade or so, there's been a strong push to better utilize civilian law enforcement in the areas around post, particularly in dealing with sexual assault, because there's this whole issue of, you know, that it's very internal doing these investigations. And whenever it's it's external partners are involved, it kind of keeps the, the process honest, Right. So there's not a much that the military can tell a spouse to not do. So if unless there is, you know, some kind of an agreement, that spouse can access whatever he or she needs to access. However, this whole situation is going to be complicated whenever the service member is being mandated to get whatever services, but they're to get them from the military, especially if CPS has been involved the tracking of that becomes very difficult. And again, going back to the families that are based out of the country, what do you do then? That's a really good point. I, and you know, that's something that I hadn't thought about until uh, recently I visited uh, one of our member programs down in Brownsville, Friendship of Women. And I, the question came to me is like, is there a, a shelter across the border in Matamoros? And they're like, yeah, they have a shelter there. And I had never really thought about domestic violence programs or shelters in other countries and how people might be able to access them or not. 
And, and so certainly I think that that is just an extra layer. It's like, are you aware if you were a, a, a military spouse, a civilian military spouse based in another country, are you aware of if there are even are domestic violence services organizations around you? There very well may be. Are they going to serve you um, as a as a foreign national? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe to you know a, a certain amount of days or a certain for particular services. Maybe I, and so knowing all that, navigating that in a a language barrier, if there is one, like Samantha mentioned earlier, that's really hard. And so, so yeah, I think I think that there's just so many complications. But even like on base. Do civilian spouses know where to go? I think that's a, a question is like the military member probably does. They probably understand the structure of the base and like where things are. But do civilian spouses get a like a debriefing of all the things? I don't know. Again, it's a post by post difference. Some posts, as soon as a family member comes on to post, moves on to post, whatever the case may be, there is a an in-processing kind of thing where they'll be informed of things like this. They'll be informed of what resources are available, but it comes so fast. It's, you know, how am I going to retain this? So a lot of spouses lean heavily on family readiness groups is what they're called. But a lot of spouses don't participate, especially male spouses, because they feel so overshadowed by the number of women that are in those groups. So they're, they're depending upon family readiness groups to get this information. And there's also a language barrier within the military. The military speaks their own language. Everything's an acronym. Everything is, it makes perfect sense to us, but it's not going to make sense to anybody else. So that you have to learn to speak the language of the military. And I'm wondering if that's like a place where there's room for collaboration between the local family violence programs where they do exist, right? And those specific programs like the family readiness program that you were talking about or the family services, like whatever exists already, having some of that work informed by leaders in the field, leaders in the movement, I think could be of benefit. Now, granted, right? Like we've been saying all along, this is a very... It's its own community, right? And like each community also needs to have influence and input into how domestic violence is addressed within their own community. So certainly not to say that you need civilians coming in and saying this is the way you have to do things, but just having that collaboration there so that, yeah, it might be like a reminder that, hey, maybe we do a refresher every once in a while and not have this like, what do they call it? Drinking from a water hose when you first come on base and then never again talk about it, right? (laughs) And expect family members to just sort of remember everything they learned or having signs and posters or having resources out and accessible. I think Aren't there like stores on base, like where you do your grocery shopping and stuff? So like maybe something integrated in there. And I would imagine there's a lot of places that that's happening, especially now that there is more focus on the the social piece of leadership. And there is more focus on stopping some of the violence that's going on on post, I'm sure with all of us. Being here in Central Texas, we've heard some of the horror stories coming out of Fort Hood. And with every 
unfortunately, sometimes it takes a loss to get people motivated again. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's also really hard to, for, for people who don't have experience with the military to, to understand that the military is its own system. It's, it's insular. I think that's really frustrating for people who see the news stories and have a particular concept of the military. And so, and when you see that it's, it's mostly women, right. Who are, who are being victims. And so again, a historically male or masculine organization field profession. And, and so there's, there's a lot of thoughts and feelings that, that come up. And so when we think about those potential collaborations, it's also like, this is, this is also systems change work. It, it's not something that happens overnight or will happen just because they, you know, this one base has a partnership with its local program. Like it is a, a full systems change work, just like when we're talking about domestic violence globally, it's like a, a societal change that we're working on. And I think that that's a great thing to point out is the fact that it is a bigger issue. Again, you've just kind of got this little microcosm going on and everything looks more compressed and everything looks more dire. And there's been some great work come out of the military that has informed the civilian space, particularly with child abuse. There is the Navy family system. I forget what they call themselves because everything in the military has got to have a name. It's got to be different. But they, their work and research is informing how civilian organizations investigate emotional abuse. So there's been a ton of good things come out of the military. But whenever you have an organization that is very insular, let's not forget, has their own criminal justice system and own code of laws, UCMJ, has their own culture has their own areas in which they operate, geographical areas where civilians can't even access without given being given permission. It does become very complicated and it does become difficult and frustrating trying to bridge those differences in a way that it doesn't look like we're just too different. We're not, this is not going to work. Yeah. And I think you mentioned UMCJ, which, correct me if I'm wrong, or UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice. That, okay, great. And I, I think you know, thinking about those collaborations, you have those training opportunities for for the JAG officers. You have the training up for like, again, uh, command, but also just anybody involved in that response. Again, like in like a court martialing type of response. I don't know what the levels are to get up to that point within a like a family violence situation. But we do that in the civilian setting, right? We train judges, we train prosecutors. We do that to try to make sure that, again, people have a, an under, a specific understanding of the laws governing family violence. And we're trying to get through some of that bias that people might have. And so that's just another opportunity for training, I think. But th- there's that like specific context and specific rules that are applicable to the military again umbrella and then the branches specifically probably so you had the ucmj which covers the entire military and then you have regulations 
And I can't speak personally to military attorneys and military judges and, you know, what role they're taking in the prevention piece or even what role they're taking to sort of change and and make their justice system a little bit more survivor friendly. But I can say a lot of the times those cases never make it that far. A lot of times they end up handled at a unit level and the service member may receive an Article 15, which is a non-judicial punishment. But that Article 15 may be for being drunk and not being involved in a domestic. So you would look at that soldier or that service member's record whenever they move to another post. And you might not know that they were even involved in something like that. That's so interesting. And yeah, it makes me think of like the way they have their own protective orders. I think we talked about, but that's called what, like a no contact order where like on a surface level, things might look like sometimes they mimic an exterior criminal legal system and like they're doing the steps, right? Like, oh, well, there was a response and look, this is the response. But then when you, when you dig a little deeper, you're like, yeah, like what practically does this translate to, right? So like what accountability is there or like what information does this convey to future partners or to future employers or branches or positions or whatever? And also like what impact does it have on the survivor? Like, is it, is it of benefit to the survivor? Is this something that's helpful or is it something that it's like, oh, great. So now he got in trouble at work and had this thing happen, but maybe no real influence on the situation, you know, which is not to say that that doesn't happen (laughs) all the time outside of the military also, right? Like that's, you know, we hear all the time, mutual combat or drunken disorderly or just disturbing the people, you know, (laughs) that happens all the time. But yeah, it just makes me wonder like kind of what's on paper versus what's what's happening. And to just sort of reiterate, I am sure there are commands who are on top of this and they're doing great things and they're doing everything right. Unfortunately, we don't ever hear about that. You know, we, we just kind of hear about where things went wrong. But I think as you were saying with the collaboration with the civilian world and how and the civilian response to domestic violence, I think that there's a lot of room for commands who are doing it right to reach out to some of these other commands. And there's always the the egos start getting involved, which that's everywhere you go, whether it's the military or three ring circus, somebody's going to have an ego problem. But I think getting past that to be able to retain some of these soldiers instead of letting it get to the point where they're getting put out, needs to be a readiness issue that is addressed. I love that idea because I think that people are going to hear it best from 
similar people to them, right? So it's similar to trying to go and doing a law enforcement training. <laughs> you know, sometimes if you're like the social worker that goes in there, they'll be like, you have no idea what my life is like. You have no idea what my day-to-day is. You can't possibly understand the situations I'm facing. So I'm going to take what you're saying with a grain of salt, right? We do that in almost every sphere, right? Like the same thing with teachers or the same thing with social workers, like pe- people who you're like, you don't, you don't get it. You don't understand my day to day. So I think that there's a lot of value in having somebody who's in the same position as you saying like, this is how we're doing it. And it seems to be working really well. We're having this great response and, you know, it's maybe not, not any more cumbersome than the process we were doing, but this is just having a better effect. Right. I think there's a lot of value in sharing that amongst peers, somebody who can kind of relate to what that's like for you. And I think it's easier to receive. It's easier to be receptive to that information and comes across less as like, oh, you're trying to tell me how to do my job and you know nothing about my job. Right. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and I think that it really speaks to the the nuance of response for the military, right? Like there, it's just not just like any other response outside of the military that we that we try to work with as a movement. It's not one size fits all. We try to make it survivor specific. And so understanding that that it's just a huge layer of complexity and nuance. And it's something that is getting better. I'm glad to hear that. Tabitha, you said that, you know, from, from what you've heard, what you've seen, what you've experienced, it does seem to be getting better. And there probably are so many commands that are that are doing it the right way. But we, again, we rarely, if ever, hear about those great responses. So Tabitha, final question for you. If you had like one hope and dream for the military's response to family violence or domestic violence, like what would that hope and dream be looking into the future? Oh my goodness. I think if, if I had to, I mean, barring just going poof and making family violence no longer exist. I don't, I don't think that I'm going to get that one. I would say, I would hope that compassion become the watchword whenever they're evaluating how they're going to handle these cases. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that because while there's while there's time and places for continuity and consistency and uniformity, there's also that important piece of like these are people, we're all people, and we need to have some of that compassion integrated into our response so that we handle things with care. I love that. Tabitha, thank you so much for coming to talk with us today. I just really appreciate your perspective and and again this is such a big topic and we only kind of had a general conversation. So if ever you want to come back on the podcast and dig deeper into a particular aspect of it, uh, we're really open to that. And for, for folks listening, if you have specific experiences or, or questions about this episode, we'll put our prevention email address in the, in this episode description and maybe we'll get a, a part two together. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Tabitha. We hope everyone has a great July and the rest of your summer. We'll be back in August for the last episode of season three. And then we'll take a little break and then be back for season four 
in October. So until then, bye.